Everybody, we made it. It's Friday. Fan drive time. Sportsnet 5.9 The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Uh, Blue Jays back to work today. They are at Great American Ballpark, which I guess is a, that's, what's, what's the company there? Great American? What do they do? Or is that just the name of the ballpark? Because it's a pretty awesome name for a ballpark. Great American Ballpark? What does Great American do? Insurance, I bet. Anyways, uh, Blue Jays starting a series against the Cincinnati Reds in Cincinnati. Game on Apple TV, uh, by the way. But you can hear it right here on Sportsnet 590. The fans starting at 630 tonight. So um, it's uh, John Gibbons used to call this nut cutting time. Okay. That's in reference, I believe, to how squirrels would would go and, and you know, get ready for hibernation by by acquiring nuts. Mariners capped off their four-game series time. with a, a victory over, over the Royals yesterday. Thank you, Gibby. Um, they took three to four from the Royals. So here's, here's where it's, it stands right now. Blue Jays. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, yeah. it, it, it's not exactly. That's where it stands. Blue Jays and Mariners tied in the loss column for that final American League wildcard spot. Uh, and the Mariners have a game in hand. They're a half game back. Mariners also on the tiebreaker. So that's not great. Fangraphs, though, is still giving the Blue Jays a 66% chance of making the playoffs. But boy, and, and I know the, the Reds are technically now tied for a playoff spot. And this is no team to take lightly. They have a negative run differential. They, they, they really struggle to pitch the ball. They've actually given up the most runs in the National League Central. They can hit it. And boy, could be a high-scoring affair in uh, one of the easiest ballparks to hit a home run in in Cincinnati tonight, but you got to start winning some baseball games. Bobichet doesn't look like he's going to be back uh, today. At least that's what he's told us yesterday when he wrapped up his rehab assignment, two for two with a home run. He said he's going to be in Cincinnati today, but back in the lineup tomorrow. We'll see. I, I haven't seen a lineup yet. I'll keep you apprised of that situation. Let's talk to Nick Ashburn, though. Blue Jays writer for Yahoo. How's it going, Nick? Good. Thanks for having me on. Thanks. Thanks for coming on, and and thanks for writing that, that story yesterday on sportsnet.ca, which left me with two takeaways. One was was pretty obvious, is that Bobochet's quite good. And the other one, I guess, is also very obvious. Uh, Paul DeYoung has not been very good for the Toronto Blue Jays. What was the bigger takeaway for you in crunching the numbers and, and coming to the conclusion that, boy, maybe an entire win in the standings was in the balance there, missing Bobochet and replacing him with Paul DeYoung? Yeah, I mean, it's about how bad DeYoung has been. It's been truly... Absurd. And you knew with the young that he wasn't a great offensive player. If you kind of go back over the last three or four years, you could argue he's been one of the worst hitters in baseball. And I don't mean that to disparage him. He's a good defensive shortstop. But the reason you acquired the young in theory was to give you some level of safety, some level of floor that if the shut's out for a while, you know, this guy's not fantastic. He's not a star, but you'll survive. And so it is very funny that they went out and did this transaction specifically to avoid the exact scenario that played out where he gave them no floor whatsoever. The floor fell out. And yeah, the conclusion of the article was that they probably have lost at least a win in the standings in a very close race, just on account of making this move for DeYoung and Bichette having this injury. Yeah, it's, it's silly. Um, Paul DeYoung is, yeah, nobody's Barry Bonds, right? He, 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 he had a batting average under the Mendoza line the last two years, but that's, that's not the only way we evaluate offense. He's, he's hit some home runs in his, in his career and was, has at times been even a, a plus offensive player. But boy, it's about results, damn it. Especially when you're a team trying to win a World Series or make the playoffs first. Uh, we haven't seen what the roster moves will be 
And yeah, his glove definitely uh, it, it plays at that position, especially considering what I feel like is a is a defensive downturn for Santiago Espinal this year. Do you think he survives the roster crunch upcoming? I mean, I guess you could make that argument partially just to avoid the embarrassment of uh, getting rid of a guy immediately after trading for him. Yeah, Espinal's not offering very much either right now, just in terms of his defense that's fallen off a little bit. Um, over the course of the season, that's always been his calling card. His offense hasn't been there either. I'm not 100% sure which way they lean here, but I, I don't think there's a, a loss in terms of bringing Bichette back and jettisoning one of these guys from the active roster. Because, like, again, the upgrade is going to be so big. And the thing with Bichette is he basically plays every day. Like, he, he kind of demands to be in the lineup. So whoever is your nominal, nominal backup shortstop as the Toronto Blue Jays, as long as Bichette's injury doesn't come back, that guy is riding the pine the vast, vast majority of the time. Yeah, uh, and we do have roster moves now, but uh, it, none of them involve Bo Bichette, so uh, th- that one still has to come tomorrow. Kevin Kiermeyer though, reinstated from the injured list today, as was Trevor Richards, so Nathan Lucas and Jay Jackson, as I kind of anticipated, might be the odd man out. Uh, might have been uh, Bowden Francis, but it's Jay Jackson and Nathan Lucas, option to AAA today, and it looks like Bo Bichette tomorrow. So, on on the Bobuchet front, like yeah, he's really good, um, and and maybe this was obvious before he went down. And again, maybe it's just it's emphasized with how poorly Paul DeYoung has played and how little production they've gotten out of shortstop when Bobuchet's not in the lineup. But it seems pretty clear to me, Nick, that that Bo is this team's MVP. Do you disagree in any way? I mean, you could make sort of an esoteric case for Matt Chapman based on his him being more of a two-way contributor, but his production has been distributed in such an odd way where he was unbelievable at the start of the year and hasn't quite reached that level since then. So in terms of that day-in, day-out consistency, Bichette is huge for them. And also, like a lot of their guys who are good, you know, Belt has been arguably one of their best hitters, are, you know, Chapman as well. They're kind of patient guys who take their walks. And at a certain point, you need a guy who gets the hits as well and brings a guy in and Bichette can be that guy because he's aggressive and he has power. So I think he not only is he just, we know he's effective, but I think he fits well within the context of the lineup and the other guys they have. Yeah. He's, he's been incredible this season. Uh, he was incredible the final month and a half of last season. It's, it's now you know, he's on pace to, to have a third consecutive season leading the American league in hits, uh, hitting over 300, hitting 321 this season, but yeah, he's got the power. He's, he's, he's seemingly doing it all. And really, if you go through the course of all uh, five of his major league seasons, of course, one of them was a pandemic season where the maximum games he could have played was 60, but he only played 29 and then getting his feet wet in 2019 only played 46 games. But even in the, in the three full seasons he's played at the major league level, like exceptionally consistent. Um, I, I've been doing like the banding uh, about uh, as is my want in, in August on sports talk radio about like, who would you rather extend Bo and Vlad and like the potential roster manipulations that could occur th- this off season. Like if you were going to bank on a guy to, to either improve on his statistics or maintain a baseline of offense, uh, maybe let's just talk about Bo specifically. Has he shown you in his, I guess, sort of brief major league sample here, but yeah, part parts of five seasons uh, in the major leagues of, base, of baseball that that feels like that's not going away. Although it's hard to do what he's doing, not taking walks and being a contact guy. But are you buying what what Bo's shown you in the major leagues? 
Yeah, he's just been so consistent year to year to year. And I think I was probably fairly skeptical of him. Like you said, he has this sort of unorthodox approach. You, you could say he swings for too many pitches. He gets too aggressive at times. He really doesn't take the walk. You know, he relies on his balls in play falling for hits a lot, but they do because he sprays them everywhere and he hits them hard. So he has this weird offensive profile. But, you know, we're talking over 2,000 at-bats at the major league level at this point. At a certain point, you kind of have to trust what you're seeing. And when you're talking about a Bichette or, you know, even Guerrero, you're talking about an investment of, you know, multi-hundreds of millions of dollars for a big extension potentially. What you really want is that level of confidence in that level of certainty. And I think you get that with a Bichette in a way that you kind of don't with Vladdy, where the highest of the highs I've seen from him have been incredible. But at this point in time, and I'm not saying that a contract extension is being talked about or signed in the next couple of days, but at this point in time, it's hard to know exactly what Vladdy is over the next couple of years. And I say that as someone who's pretty bullish on his talent, and I think he'll do better than he's done this year, even 2022 potentially. But there's a little bit more volatility there, whereas Bichette's been a metronome over the course of his career. Yeah, I would even argue that, that yeah, Vlad has been consistent outside of that weirdo 2021 season. Although, I mean, Bo also played in those minor league ballparks and his season was 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 pretty normal. Like, that that looked like the same Bo Bichette that we've seen this year. But Vladdy, for whatever reason, really, really enjoyed playing in those ballparks. And it's not like he was bad in the other ballparks he played in, but he was, like, pretty close to what he's been the, the rest of his career. I mean, figure him out for me, if you can, Nick. Like, if, if you were going to, you know, guess at the production going forward, like we, we, we have a larger sample of baseball out of Vlad than we, we do of Bo because he arrived earlier has a, has a, and played the full season in 2020, albeit, again, 60 games. But, I mean, do we have to believe that he's the guy that we've seen the last two years? And I, I guess, you know, 2022 – because of the offense environment, his OPS plus was 133, so he's 33% above league average in OPS last season. He's only been 15% above league average, playing a pretty premium offensive position at first base. Like, how? Where do you do you see his offense going in the coming years? I mean, I still think that it's it's weird to be like, oh, it's been two years of him not being fantastic. Therefore, he's going to be fantastic in the future. And to be fair, his 2022, as you point out, was quite good, but it does happen in baseball. A guy has a year, another year that doesn't quite meet expectations. And the reason I'd be bullish that he can at least be better. Maybe the 2021 level of production isn't going to be attainable for him. Uh, you know, 48 home runs. That's a lot for a guy who kind of has a flatter swing playing, hits a lot of line drives, but you know, he's shown the level of selectivity before, you know, in 2021, he really worked at bats in a way that he hasn't at the same level of effectiveness. Like that had nothing to do with the ballpark. That's in terms of his approach to the plate. I think he can probably, as he gets older, recapture that a little bit. And, you know, this year, often when he hasn't been good, it's been him pounding the ball into the dirt. And that's been, you know, the launch angle gets talked out again and again and again. And this year, it seems like he's been a little better at avoiding that problem. So even though the production has kind of been similar to some of his, you know, quote unquote down years, he has made a little bit of progress with that, even if the results haven't shown. So I do think that you're going to get a better player than you've seen this year or potentially even in 2022, but there a good chance that 48 home runs is going to be his career high and that he's not going to be a runner-up to the MVP ever again. You know, that's hard to do as a first baseman, kind of regardless how good your production is. But yeah, I think there's a decent chance 2021 is his high point, but I don't think that means that the guy he is now is the guy that he's 
doomed to be in the years to come. Yeah, and man, so much about this Blue Jays team is is super weird, at least offensively. And and his season is is weird, especially considering yeah, the launch angle is actually up this year. And for whatever reason, the homers have just not come. But specifically at home, where his his home road splits are massively different and I don't know if this is a sample size problem that like 245 plate appearances isn't isn't enough to for us to to, ha- to have meaningful takeaways of a 682 OPS we're on the road it's 862 this season he's not the only guy though that have weird home road splits like Dalton Varsho are even more extreme than that because he's pretty close to the the Dalton Varsho the Arizona Diamondbacks saw last year when he's on the road but when he's at Rogers Center it's it's abysmal I I don't know. This is the first year we've seen of the new dimensions. It, it it shouldn't be working out that way. Do you have a theory as to to why we're seeing some some very bizarre offensive results at Rogers Center this year? I mean, it is weird to say that we don't know enough, but it is true. We looked at ballparks over long periods of time to really see how they play. We need to see tons and tons of data. That all that kind of putting aside those qualifiers. It's true that Rogers Center has played like a pitcher's park this year, and it has been hard for people to hit home runs at. And, you know, they knew that they were raising the walls in a few places. I'm not saying these guys are just constantly banging it off the walls and that it's been, they've been robbed of home runs or whatever, but Rogers Center has traditionally been a good place to hit home runs. And right now, you know, StatCast, Baseball Savant, they have it as sort of the 20th best ballpark to hit home runs in. Like, that's a pretty significant yeah. difference from what we've normally seen. And it will take some time for us to know for sure. But the early take on this new renovated version of Rogers Center is that it is much more so a place for pitchers to thrive than hitters. You know, are the splits always going to be that extreme as we've seen with Vladdy and Varsho? You know, I'd be surprised a lot of stuff goes into that. And maybe over time, there's some adjustments that get made too of being in this new park all the time. But it is uh, the early returns at least say that Roger Center is just more of a pitching park than it used to be. Yeah, which is really weird, um, which is maybe not the worst thing as far as optimizing a, a roster, but it's it's not as entertaining. Yeah, Dalton Varsho, OPS on the road, 741 at home, 549, which is, nice. which is, is, it's horrible. But yeah, 741 on the road in 241 plate appearances, uh, 63 games. I, again, I haven't seen the lineup. We've just... You know, seen the the roster moves. So Kevin Kiermaier activated. I imagine you don't activate a guy without putting him in the lineup. He'll be back in the lineup today. Um, maybe let's let's you know play the 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 theoretical game of Bobuchet being available as well, Nick, and and the Blue Jays having all their complement of of position players at their disposal. What's the optimal lineup for this Blue Jays team? Because I I would posit that it does not involve Dalton Varsho against righties or lefties. That that Whit Merrifield's in left field and especially against righties, it's hard to take Kevin Biggio out of, out of second base for me. Yeah, I mean, Biggio's been fantastic. I mean, people are kind of catching on to that lately because he's had a big go sort of since the All-Star break. But even if you kind of take away his April, he was truly dismal in April. And, you know, he's talked about since sort of flattening out his swing plane a little bit, stopping those harmless fly balls that he used to hit all the time. Like, you you don't have to be a hitting mechanics expert to watch Biggio times, which is the way he seemed to kind of scoop the ball and he just doesn't have the power to get it out like that. And that was a big problem for him, flattening out a little bit more. It is impressive what he's doing. And also, you, you don't have that much rope as the Blue Jays right now. Like, If you had a little bit more comfortability in the standings, you could say, let's give Varsho more time. Let's see what he can do. Let's see if we can get him there by the time the playoffs roll around. 
but you know you have a team that's 0.5 games behind you in the standings like you really do have to consider who's working right now and I don't know if it means that Varsho is going to get no time or he's really going to ride the bench but you definitely need to consider keeping Bijou in the lineup because he has been a very effective hitter and I don't know exactly how that long that's going to last but the difference between him and Varsho in the last couple of months has been absolutely massive and I don't think you can ignore that. Yeah, and Dalton Varshow is playing some great defense, but so is Bradley Zimmer uh, in the minor league somewhere. So, yeah, you you need to, at some point, swing the bat. I, I, I'm with you, and, and it's not like Dalton Varshow is not going to get his occasional starts or not going to appear in games. He's obviously going to be a defensive replacement as well. But I do I do wonder what it, again, like looking ahead to, to next season, what it does to this Blue Jays front office as far as thinking about how to how to make a – or optimize a lineup for 2024 and whether Dalton Varsho is viewed as an everyday player or whether you, you give him an opportunity to, to win that job that you really do need to go out and acquire a, another outfielder. How do you, how do you think this, this debut season as a blue Jay has impacted the blue Jays thinking about Dalton Varsho long-term? Well, I mean, I, you know, all the, your prognosis has to be worse at this point, right? You can't just take all this data from this truly lost offensive season and ignore it and pretend you feel the same way about him now that you did prior to acquiring him. Clearly, something's happened. I think the thing with Varsho is that now, with Kiermaier presumably leaving in free agency, you can put him in center field, and then the bar for his offense goes down a little bit, and you can live with him hitting eighth in the lineup and not being particularly productive and, you know, hitting the odd home run, and you're happy with that. And that's, you know, kind of the Kevin Pillar model or whatever, and that's a little bit more palatable. So bringing them down the defensive spectrum to center field helps a lot. I, I think he was maybe put in a position to fail a little bit, being a left fielder, like a non-premium defensive position where he would have had a hard time. And to, to his credit, he did well. But it's hard to accumulate too much defensive value out there. And so that was always his calling card. If you give him center field, I think you're putting him in a better spot. But the level he's hit this season, like that's still well below what you want from a from any center fielder who's starting every day. So you do need to see improvement no matter what, but having him play center field full time, uh, I think lets him exhale a little bit and let you know, his production sing a little bit more. Yeah. And maybe you can uh, improve on an OPS plus of 80, which is uh, quite bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, not ideal. Again, haven't seen the lineup today, but David Schneider, boy, it's his playing time is diminished um, because of uh, the, the, the heater that Kevin Biggio on partly, uh, it was such an incredible debut, Nick. He was having such a great season in, in AAA, and he was such a great story. He still is uh, such a great story. I shouldn't speak of him in, in past tense terms because he survived the the roster crunch of today and I guess didn't have to, although they activated an outfielder and then sent an outfielder down. Uh, tomorrow could be a, a different deal with Bo Bichette being activated. I mean, where are you on on what Davis Schneider could be and and what he might be and and what his role is with this this current Blue Jays team? Because it's quite possible that maybe we've seen his last start as a Blue Jay this season. Yeah, I mean that that is something that could be in the cards. Like you said, it's ama- it's sort of amazing what happened happened, and people should enjoy that moment in a season that has been I think bleak for for a large part. So it's cool that that happened if they had had more confidence in him, and he has played around the diamond defensively uh, in the minor leagues, but, you know, Espinal got a lot of work at third base in the last few days. If they had felt more confident play around the diamond, I think that that could have opened up opportunities for him. But realistically, it seemed like they saw him as a 
second baseman and a left fielder pretty much only. And then when you have Whit Merrifield, who is exactly that player defensively, and Kevin Biggio, who's doing well in playing those positions, it put him in a tough spot where he had to just stay on fire to stay in the lineup. I think he's still an interesting player for this team going forward. Like, you know, the story is absolutely not written. Well, you cannot take away what he did at AAA. And he's not some, I know that he wasn't considered a top, top prospect, but, you know, he's a guy who's 24. It's not like he was 28 and he'd been in the AAA for years and years and years and just kind of put a good season together. Like, he's still someone who's interesting, has a little bit of versatility, has a little bit of pop, clearly is patient. We saw that even when he wasn't absolutely rolling. So, I don't know exactly if he has a role to play in the rest of 2023 necessarily. He might, but he's someone that's going to be interesting in the years to come. Like someone, for example, think of how many at bats Santiago Espinal has gotten for the Blue Jays over the last few years. Not exactly the same player, but someone who's like an, your mm. fifth infielder. You can carve out a decent role like that, and he could do that in a very different style potentially. Yeah, and that would be uh, a great success going from 28th rounder to major leaguer. Uh, to any degree uh, before that you go, you mentioned it's been a pretty bleak season. It, it, it has been like, despite the fact the blue Jays are in a playoff spot and boy, yeah. Yankees fans uh, are even like that. Yeah. They tell, tell Yankees fans, the blue Jays season has been bleak and, and they'll laugh uh, because that's been way more bleak, but this is a team that had world series aspirations and has had like, I don't know, save for the Bo Bichette injury, like no injuries. They, they've just been so healthy all season long. And here they are, fighting tooth and, and nail to get into the postseason. They they need to to go twenty three and seventeen for ninety wins. I mean, how how do you evaluate this season, Nick, when when you look at the expectations and then you look at some of the things that have gone right for this team? I mean, yeah, you, you can't really consider it to be anything but at this point, again, at this exact point. Like at this these type of conversations we've been having all year about how disappointing the Blue Jays are they could all end up being incredibly silly, right? Like they yep. could go on a heater and they could do something in the playoffs. They've got great bullpen. They've got good starters. Like they could eke out a bunch of low scoring games or some of their big bats to come around. Like everything is still on the table for the 2023 Blue Jays. So I'm reluctant to say like this season is a disappointment, but right now that's where they're at. They haven't lived up to expectations on offense. And a lot of their good stories are on the pitching side. You know, it's Yusei Kikuchi having, especially recently, like an unbelievable season, the type of season you never even thought was possible for this guy. And Jose Barrios, maybe not looking quite as convincing as peak Jose Barrios, but having similar numbers to what he did in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. You know, even Ryu making it back. I don't have amazingly high hopes of him being an impact player down the stretch, but that's even just a good story that he's able to make it back and kind of fulfill the end of his contract and make a contribution here. So the bullpen too has good stories as well. It's just, it's the, it's the smaller players on this team, the more complimentary players on this team that have tended to be the good stories, the surprises, you know, the Merrifields, the belts, and it's been the most prominent players on the team, the Vladdy's and the Springers. Uh, and, you know, even your all-star catcher last year, Alejandro Kirk, it's been, the guys that people care about the most have been the ones who have not been as good. And it's been the guys who are kind of on the edges that have, uh, have been better. And it's just been a weird year that, that way. Cause this team was supposed to hit maybe not as much as before, but still hit a ton. And that just hasn't happened. And we're running out of time for it to happen. Yep. We are. And, and even Matt Chapman, boy, feels like, man, wh- where would the numbers be if he, he didn't have like one of the greatest months uh, in the history of baseball in, in April uh, as the OPS is now under 800 and in an overall sense doesn't look bad. But yeah, uh, it, it's been a while since we've seen peak Matt Chapman. Hey, Nick, uh, thanks for doing this. Enjoy the game tonight. 
You too. Have a good one. All right. There's Nick Ashburn, senior writer at Yahoo Sports Canada. So, yeah, 40 games to go for the Blue Jays. So, I mentioned it. 23-17 and 17 gets them to 90 wins. That's probably good enough to make the playoffs. But here's what it's not. Good enough compared to where this team should be. They need a 26-14 and 14 finish to improve on last season's regular season record, which was 92-70, and 70, which improved on the previous season's record of 91-71. and 71. That'd be a nice little step in the right direction. Go 91 wins, 92 wins, 93 wins. It's, it's not all that important, I suppose, if they do damage in the postseason. And I, I don't want to go as far to, as to say that the postseason's a coin flip. There's, there's certainly more luck involved. Here's where you can truly evaluate the job that the front office has done and the job that the individual players have done. The long sample of 162 games. And Nick's right to point out there's 40 games to go, lots of ground to make up, and keep going back to last season. And and Bo Bichette turning his season around around this exact same point. So the, 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 the story of the 2023 Blue Jays has not been written. But to this point extremely disappointing they've had okay unlucky i guess to some degree with runners in scoring position except like you do control some of your results and they've struck out a ton with runners in scoring position you want to talk about luck though to me and it's not all luck i understand because there are indicators of of when you're going to be hurt and it's when you've been previously hurt and the blue jays have on purpose, acquired players who do not have previous injury histories outside of Kevin Kiermaier, uh, who is coming off of the injured list, although not with the hip thing that he just had surgery on. But no, they've been extremely healthy. Bo Bichette, even this, this injury that he's sustained over the last two weeks, he missed two weeks. Looked like his knee exploded. And the Blue Jays couldn't backfill his injury. Alec Manoa was abysmal and and not in the major leagues. So what? They they got incredible performances out of guys that you didn't expect much of considering last season for Yusei Kikuchi and really the length and breadth of his entire career and Jose Barrios last season. This team has been lucky. They haven't been injured. Yeah, okay, they play in a tough division. So what? You only played 13 games against the teams within your own division. This is, to this point, a very disappointing season for the Blue Jays. Perhaps it changes tonight, starting uh, in Cincinnati against Joey Votto and the Reds. All right, when we come back, uh, we lost one of the all-time voices in the National Hockey League. As Rick Janaret died yesterday at the age of 81. We're going to talk to former Buffalo Sabre Matthew Barnaby, and uh, we'll also talk to the voice of the Maple Leafs, Joe Bowen, next as we remember RJ. As the fan drive time continues, I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Dive deep into Toronto sports and the NFL. The J.D. Bunkus podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Each other. Uh, Domi loses his hat. 
center ice, and the linesmen are now, well, they started to move in, and Barnaby drilled a right in there. And another one. They're dead tired, but they still try to get at each other. All right, fan drive time, Sportsnet 590, the fan. I'm Ben Ennis. That, of course, the dulcet tones of Rick Janaret. That was Matthew Barnaby against Ty Domi at the Gardens, 1996. I- I'd call it a draw. Hello. I mean, the, the audio certainly makes it seem like a draw video. Yeah, maybe not. Um, yeah. The, one of the all-time greats, Rick Janaret, uh, uh, passing away yesterday at the age of 81. 51 years calling Sabres games. Longest serving play-by-play man in NHL history. A uh, bunch of those games played by our next guest, Matthew Barnaby. Seven years of Buffalo Sabre. Hey, man. Um, thanks for doing this. Yeah, tough day, man. Um, what, what, what will you remember most about RJ? Well, nice being on with you, Benny. 50 years old. So it's absolutely insanity that he worked at the same job and was an absolute legend for 51 years. What will I remember most? He just made the, the game enjoyable on a Tuesday night, a Saturday night, he gave everyone a reprieve from their, their daily job duty uh, every single night. And um, when I heard the news last night, obviously tears were flowing. I, I was a young kid, 19 years old, turning 20, and to know this man for 30 years and his passion for the game in Buffalo, there couldn't be two more perfect scenarios where you have a man that is so passionate about his job um, a city that loves sports and the two culminations of those two colliding for 51 years is absolutely incredible. And uh, his call, his, his call mayday yeah. to me, to, to me is, is number one. Brad may is probably my best friend in the world. The guy that I love very much. And um, I always, I always joke him that, that joke with him that, that that call made him like fifteen to twenty million dollars because he wasn't a very good hockey player, um, and that call made him fifteen million. I, I said you have to send Rick like seven million dollars um, because that one call just made your career. You weren't a very good hockey player, and you toasted Ray Bork like unbelievable. And he just turned it into a legend. Like I'll always remember that to the day I die. That call, I was in the stands watching it. So. Uh, sad, sad day, but also a day of remembrance that maybe the best that ever lived in what he did. No, he was amazing. And yeah, I, I, I did want to talk about Mayday because you played in, in that, in that playoffs. Uh, of course that was a, a sweep of, of the Bruins Mayday call in, in overtime, but you played a game in, in the next round against the Habs. So were you in the press box? Like, were, were you, were you next to, to Rick? Like what, what how, how were you, how were you absorbing that game? I, I was up there with him, but uh, far apart. And I was just called a junior, so I didn't expect to play a game at all. And, and just watching it was incredible. Like, I just left Victoriaville like three days earlier or five days earlier and, and got to see this. It was just absolute uh, mayhem. I obviously didn't hear the call till we went out to the bar that night. We were actually at Kicks Nightclub. And the bar was playing, and we were like, oh, my God, what a call. Like, this is the most unbelievable thing in the world. And I'm just a young kid watching with Brad and his wife and, and Bob Sweeney and Dave Hennon, Pat LaFontaine, all, all the guys. And then hearing the call firsthand um, after it had happened, we are like, this, this is going to go down as legendary. 
Yeah. And obviously it has. We're 30 years later still talking about it. So uh, just uh, great memories, just great memories. A day for reminiscence. No, for sure. And, yeah, you you were just connecting with you as we were playing the the, the clip that I sent you on Twitter of, of you and Ty and – and yeah, you got a good shot in at the end of that thing, but uh, <laughs> the audio, the audio did make it seem like yeah, you were winning the fight. Of course, as as the Sabers home uh, broadcast is going to make it sound like. Did you ever uh, go back and and listen to the calls? Man, I I I, I wish there were there were more fights uh, that you know we could get audio from because like <laughs> there's nothing better than like a, a hyped up play by play guy calling a spontaneous fight like like the one I, I we just played. 96, you and Ty Domi at, at Maple Leaf Gardens. But did you ever, like, after the game, understanding that such a legendary play-by-play man was calling your 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 games as a Sabre, did you ever go back and, like, listen to how it actually sounded and how it's going to be living uh, forever in, in history? All, all the time. And, listen, I, I fought 200 times in the NHL, probably 120 of those with the, with the Buffalo Sabres, and I lost probably 119 no. of those fights. No. And, well, I lost a lot of them and, and Rick made it seem like I won 120 of them. That's what a, a broadcaster does for a home feed. And uh, at, at the same time, he wasn't biased. There's, there's guys out there. I'm not going to bring up their names. Jack Edwards. Um, <laughs> that, the center. Rick was just passionate about the Buffalo Sabres and about his players, and, and he never let us off the hook or or did fallacies uh, about us. But yeah, we all went back. We all, if we scored a goal, we wanted to hear how he portrayed that game. And I, I don't think as a young kid you did. It was more like after five years, like, oh my God, I got to listen to what how he saw this fight. And if you won or you lost the fight, if you scored a goal, he just made it that much much more interesting. And I always say. Sports is is an escape for people in their regular day lives, mm-hmm. and for me, that I'm a New York Jets fan. I, I watch our games, and 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 that's that's an escape for me. I, I love those three hours on a Sunday or a Monday, whatever day they play. For Buffalo Sabres fan, he made 51 years of of escapes for these people, probably two or three days a week during that season, and. There's a lot of famous Buffalo Sabres players, Danny Gare and Gilbert Perot and Rick Martin, Rennie Robert, the most famous Buffalo Sabre of all time. And for all time, it'll never, ever change, is the famous, is the famous RJ. No one's ever going to exceed him. There's going to be a statue for him. He is the most famous Buffalo Sabre of all time. Yeah, and, and you know, the, the community thing is what's interesting to me because Buffalo's not Toronto, despite the proximity, right? Like it's it's a mm-hmm. it's a different community, yeah. and yeah. that he spent fifty years in in that community, right? Like there's hey, we we uh, revere our our media figures, and we're going to talk to one after you and Joe yeah. Bowen. But it's yeah. it's like what did he mean to to that community, having lived in it for so long? He he's the epitome of what Buffalo is. First of all, he loves to drink beer. Love to drink beer, nice. and I, I I raise a glass to him uh, today because he is authentically himself. And please tell Joe I say hi because I absolutely love Joe Bowen and what he's done for that community, and obviously a much bigger market. Rick Jenneret is Buffalo. He loves to drink beer. He loves to have fun. He loves to uh, just say it the way it is, and that that's the way Buffalo is. And 
Um, he means the world. I mean, it's a sad day, but a, a happy day mm-hmm. because we get to relive. I think a lot of times you take it, you take for granted, um, not your idols, but people that are, are big influences in your life. And today we get so many different generations from the 20 year olds that got to listen to them at the end to the 80 year olds that got to listen to him for 50 years and revere uh, what he did and bringing joy to our lives. It, it's an incredibly sad day, but an inc- incredibly joyous day at the same time. Yeah. No, it, it, an incredible, incredible voice. Um, yeah, and again, made you – it sound like you, you beat Ty Domi in that fight. Again, you you got, I think, the best punch of the deal. Was that the first one you guys had? That was 96 at the Garden. You, you fought six times. It's the second most fights you had against anybody. Lyle Odeline was, was the most you had. You had seven against him, but six against Ty. Yeah, I, I lost all six to Ty, and he, he tells me all the time in a group text that I'm in with another 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 former player. Um, Ty was tough, man. Could couldn't beat him, even if you could beat him. That that melon on his head, you, you, like literally, you couldn't hurt him. So uh, I lost all six. I actually beat Lyle a bunch. Oh, nice. So I'll, I'll I'll take the Lyle fights. I, I got to hear those on loop now. But um, um, it was it was a pleasure. It was a, an absolute pleasure to play the game and to have such a legendary guy call your games. Um, it, I, I've been listening to it all day, mm-hmm. uh, all day going back and listening to Matt, the rat and my favorite, my, my favorite line from him for, for me, if, if Matthew Barnaby could fight with his lips, he'd be the heavyweight champ <laughs> of the world. <laughs> that, that, that was my life. And he came up with that line literally while he was watching a game, watching me chirp. So, yeah. Uh, uh, a sad day, but a, an unbelievable day because we get to reminisce. No, it's great. And Barney, thanks, thanks so much for getting it for for reminiscing with us. And maybe time to go back and and hoisting uh, beers, you know, in his honor. Thanks, buddy. Well, well, I never won a Stanley Cup. I didn't get to hoist it, but I've hoisted a few beers in my day. Love you, buddy. Keep up the great work. <laughs> right, you too. See, you, man. <laughs> uh, there's Matthew Barnaby, seven years uh, a Buffalo Saber, uh, reminiscing about Rick Jenneret. 51 years calling uh, Buffalo Sabres games passes away yesterday at the age of 81. Let, let's reminisce some more with the aforementioned Joe Bowen, voice of the Toronto Maple Leafs. Joe, thanks for, for doing this. Uh, what are you thinking about uh, the last couple of days, thinking about Rick Jenneret? Well, sadness, I think, uh, Ben, more than anything. Um, and, and then, you know, one of the things that I, I'm really happy for him uh, is that uh, when he decided that, and, and, and this went on for years, where he was going to retire, and oh no, no, the Sabers wanted him back, and they brought him back, and then a number of years that that went on. But the farewell tour that they had, and the Sabers, of course, weren't a very good hockey team; they weren't going to make the playoffs. But it was a celebration of life uh, for a season with Rick Jenneret, mm-hmm. and um, for him to have experienced that and to know how people felt and how much he touched them and how much he was a part of their growing up or a part of their life or a part of uh, their evenings and what meant so much to him. And I'm really glad that he was able to experience that and to understand where he kind of sat in in the, the fans' hearts. Take me back to, to 1982 because you, you've been over 40 years calling Maple Leafs games, but he, he'd already been entrenched for 10 years when you arrived at the NHL level. 
What, what do you remember uh, in your first meetings with, with Rick? Well, I had met Rick in Niagara Falls uh, at one occasion prior to that. Um, and, you know, he uh, kind of took me under his arm and a little bit and said, you know, keep at it. You're doing great. You know, you're, there's one more step to make. And I, I thought that was awfully kind of him. But, um, you know, when, when I got to doing the work and getting an opportunity, uh, Ted Darling uh, was there and would, would pass very quickly uh, after that. Um, you know, and every meeting, every time we played the Buffalo Sabres, which was quite a lot in, in preseason and then regular season, um, it was always, hey, Joey. <laughs> I, was, I thought my parents were the only ones that called me that, but hey, Joey, come on, let's, what's going on with your hockey team? And we'd have a nice little conversation. And he always had some stupid joke that he had uh, held on for a little while that you had to hear. Probably it was every team that went through got to hear it as well, but um, that was that was a very special part about Rick. He made you feel very comfortable. Um, he was very uh, open with uh, any suggestions. If you had anything that you wanted to kind of throw his way, but um, just a fun-loving guy that went to work to have fun mm-hmm. and brought you along with him. And uh, that that's a great skill to have. And uh, uh, I know that. Saber fans are feeling that now. But what is the fraternity of, of, of play-by-play men in, in the National Hockey League? Because, I mean, the, if, from a proximity standpoint, Sabres and, and Leafs, there's no closer, I don't think, in, in the NHL. Well, other than all the, well, New, yeah, the New York teams. Yeah, the, the New York teams are pretty close. But, yeah, what is the fraternity like among play-by-play guys? Well, first off, when you... <laughs> If you get the opportunity to do that, you don't want to give it up. Right. <laughs> so, so there are some of uh, what am I going to dinosaurs <laughs> like myself and Rick, who you know we've never really had a real job. Um, we we go to hockey games and, and invite you to come along with us, mm-hmm. and I think that's just a tremendous. You know, opportunity and, and anybody that has ever done it obviously realizes how fortunate we are to hold positions like this. Um, but th- the thing that I liked about Rick and, and mostly was that, that it wasn't cookie cutter. This wasn't just somebody who had, you know, kind of gone through a, a, a course or something and now we're just going to do it this way. Rick did his own thing and it was. A great ride. It was a great listen, and then it was something that you could, you know, fall in love with, which obviously the Saber fans did. But it was never going to be the same. You know, each night there might be something la 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 Fontaine come <laughs> blurting out, and that was something that Rick never, I don't believe, ever uh, rehearsed. Or oh, he's a great thing. I'm going to try and work this in. I think it was always just the spur of the moment mm-hmm. and what that moment meant, how excited was Rick and therefore how excited were you? Well, and, and how difficult is that? Listen, it, it's sports are amazing. It's, it's, it's my life as well, but there are days, you know, like any job where you, you can you maybe not uh, immediately automatically feel the passion, but it, it, I mean, in every single call you, you go back and listen to from Rick Janaret. 
it seemed to be there. I mean, how, how difficult is that to drum up, especially when you're talking about a fallow period for, for the Buffalo Sabres? Oh, I'm, I've had some experience at that. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you, know, you know what? Not every, not every game is going to be a Rembrandt. There's going to be a lot of Picassos. And so if the game is a Picasso, sometimes you have to entertain. Um, and, and that was, you know, Rick's stories and things that would be brought up in the broadcast. Just the fact that he was having fun with the people that he worked with. And you could certainly sense that and appreciate it and enjoy it. Um, I think that's uh, something that was uh, anybody that ever worked with him. And, I, you know, I've talked with Harry Neal, uh, who I worked with and, and working with Rick. And he said it was it was just a pleasure and a privilege. And mm-hmm. He let you do your thing. Uh, he wasn't stepping on your toes or directing you away or, or, you know, being overly critical or anything of that nature. I think that that's one of the great skills that he had as well. Yeah, and, and 51 years calling Sabres games, and, and who knows if there's not the pandemic season where there's no fans if, if he decides to hang them up uh, during that, that awful uh, 2020 season in, in Stez. Instead, does uh, his farewell tour in 2021. And, of course, Maple Leafs playing the Sabres throughout the course of that season. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the farewell tour. I mean, how emotional was that for you, for, for somebody that had, you know, seen the majority of, of his career to, to share a booth with him in his final season and nobody in the history of, of calling National Hockey League games, calling 51 seasons unbelievably in the National Hockey League? No, that's uh, that is a mark that... Uh... Well, I don't think I'm going to reach. I know that. But uh, um, it, it, it really is something because he really came on board when the Buffalo Sabres came on board uh, mm-hmm. virtually. I mean, maybe for three years. Um, so, um, and, you know, a tremendous opportunity for him as a young broadcaster out of Niagara Falls and then to end up being uh, the voice of the Sabres for that long. Um, you know, Ben, it was, I, you, you feel for him because of the length that he did it and no Stanley cup. Yeah. No crowning moment like that. But the crowning moment for Rick was certainly Rick Jenner at night. And uh, the last night where the players took him out onto the ice, you know, for their congratulatory and, and you know what, and fittingly whether, you know, it had a great deal, deal to do in the dressing room or not, the Sabres won the hockey game for him. Mm-hmm. And I think that that meant a great deal to him and to the Sabre fans that he went out on a high note, although he never did get that Stanley Cup ring. Uh, I think the memories and everything else that he had with them is certainly well worth it. Um, speaking of Stanley Cup rings, I mean, Toronto Maple Leafs, the, well, last, I was going to say the last uh, better part of a decade have been trying to win a Stanley Cup. I mean, for the better part of uh, the more than a half century, they've been trying to win a Stanley Cup, but they've, They've uh, acquired some pretty notable free agents headed into this upcoming season. Joe, I do I did want to get your thoughts on on the Tyler Bertuzzi and Max Domi signings and, and what that portends for, for the Leafs for this upcoming season. Well, you can't have enough people from Sudbury. Yeah. <laughs> so so we'll, we're, we're, we're all excited about uh, Tyler Bertuzzi coming as well. I mean, Ben, it's, they're going to be different. Right. And, and a lot of the people that they acquired and you just named two there are replacing people that they acquired late in the season last year and then were not able to retain. 
So I think that this team has at least um, got themselves some people who are going to be playoff-type players. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I can't help but think that Max Domi is going to have tremendous season here coming home and being a part of the Maple Leafs, uh, an organization where when he was just a little tight, was running all over the place in the dressing room and everything else. So I, I'm excited about this. I'm excited about the opportunity. The, the whole deal is, and, and Rick Jenneret knew this better than anyone else, you have to get into the tournament. Mm-hmm. And for everybody to yell and scream, we've got to blow it up, trade this guy to everything else. Well, that may hinder you getting in the tournament. And if you don't get in, you can't win the ultimate prize. So um, I think that they are built more like a playoff team. It'll be interesting to see what Mr. Treliving does uh, from here on in and uh, at the trade deadline and everything else. But this is a as talented a group as I've ever been associated with. And they have to catch a break or two and maybe get some uh, goaltending like Sergei Bobrovsky provided Florida last year to get some traction and get through a couple of rounds and see what happens. Yeah, goaltending appears to be kind of important in this sport. And <laughs> maybe it's in my men's league when they don't have it because I'm playing it. <laughs> well, we'll see. Maybe this is this is the year that it all comes together. Hey, they won a round last year. Uh, Joe, uh, appreciate the time and thanks for. Uh, for reminiscing about uh, RJ with us. Uh, one of a kind, and um, he won't soon be forgotten, certainly in Buffalo. I'm, I'm really appreciative of how the Sabres are handling all of this. They've got a big RJ out in front of the building. People are dropping by and uh, leaving mementos or flowers and, and recognizing uh, what a great piece mm-hmm. of Sabre history has passed away here uh, with the loss of RJ. Yeah, uh, not uh, dissimilar to, to Vince Scully with the Dodgers, where you think of the organization, you might not even think about one individual player. You think about a broadcaster. I think he's he's that. absolutely yeah, that's absolutely a, yeah. Uh, Joe, thanks again. Anytime, Ben. All right, there's Joe Bowen, voice of the Toronto Maple Leafs, uh, reminiscing about Rick Janerite. All right, when we come back, we do have now a lineup for the Blue Jays as they start a series in Cincinnati against the Reds and. Kind of an interesting one. Tell you, I'll tell you one thing. Matt Chapman has recovered from his finger injury. He's in the lineup. Uh, we'll get to the lineup. We'll talk about it with our next guest, Caleb Joseph of Blue Jay Central. As the fan drive time continues, I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Time Sportsnet 590, the fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Blue Jays, Cincinnati Reds from Great American Ballpark, where they hit a lot of home runs. Both teams. Cincinnati Reds hanging in there despite a negative run differential. All right, the Blue Jays are going to trot out a lineup today that includes their new cleanup man. 
That would be right fielder Kevin Biggio. Uh, as George Springer gets the day off, Brandon Belt uh, as the DH. Man, it's it's hard to argue with the, the way he's hit recently, but going all the way back to May, quite a deal, though, that the Blue Jays, fighting for their playoff lives, are going into a series with Kevin Biggio uh, hitting fourth, playing right field. It's kind of a cool day today, but not too cool to keep um, myself off the golf course, not too cool to keep our next guest off the golf course, I'm sure. Caleb Joseph, Blue Jay Central analyst. Hello. Oh, it's up, Ben. Yeah, it's okay, right? Like it was a little windy today. What's the deal? Oh yeah, thirty mile per hour. It was uh, gusting, and I'm actually currently standing on the range trying to figure out why my ball was slicing 500 yards to the right. <laughs> so we'll see. We'll figure it out. Okay, I have the opposite problem. I I, I was actually just talking earlier today about uh, how. I can't, uh, I can't slice. Like, I don't know how people have a slice problem. I'm like, um, when it's going wrong, it's, it's a duck hook for me. So maybe, maybe combine our two swings and maybe, maybe yeah. you got something there. Yeah, tour-esque. That's yeah. right. Yeah. All right. Uh, Kevin Biggio hitting fourth. Uh, y- your thoughts. Like I said, this guy's, he's been really good recently. That's, that's quite, I mean, I, I guess it's not a big difference from hitting fifth where he's been hitting recently, but yeah, fourth is notable, I think. It is. And uh, John Schneider throughout this entire year has not been afraid to shake it up and play the hot hand. And I like it. I like it. I like it a lot because Biggio is really swinging the bat well. He's given the Blue Jays a really good AB. Is it kind of uncharacteristic in terms of like the name and what you would think? I mean, people are all over the 25th and 26th man and Biggio's name is always a hot topic. So this late in the season to see him hitting fourth, it raises a ton of eyebrows, but he's been really solid. He's put together really nice ABs, come up with some really clutch hits for the Blue Jays. And you can't really argue. I, we, we showed a stat on Blue Jay Central a couple of days ago that his home run to at-bat ratio is actually the second highest on the team next to Danny Jansen. Hmm. I mean, raise your hand if you had those two guys hitting – the most homers per AB ratio. I I would not have guessed that. Yep, it's ahead of Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Yep, oh, yeah. it's ahead of Bo Bichette. And you know what? Sometimes you just got to play the hot hand. John Schneider's doing that right now. Yeah, I mean, now that you brought up Danny Jansen, I was I was going to bring him up later on in the conversation. But let's talk about his eight hit by pitches already through seventy seven games. He gets the the four days off with the off days on on the other side of uh of the that two game series and this will be his fifth day off is alejandro kirk in there catching i i know the catching position is is one where it's man it's a war of attrition out there because you get foul balls off all matter of your body but then when oh, you yeah. throw in the mm-hmm. eight hit by pitches how's this guy gonna survive yeah great question uh <laughs> that protective pad on his left hand has really um, gotten its money's worth this year. And goodness, I would say out of those eight hit, hit by pitches, at least five of them are right on that hand. And they make good, strong pads there. But sometimes it just takes a little bit of an awkward uh, connection to still really rattle that area. And that's the catching hand. That's the lead hand that you're going to pull down on uh, as a right-handed hitter. And yes, the, the the position is just so grueling. And when you add in the fact that it seems like that left hand has just been targeted the entire season. And that's arguably his most important hand, obviously for catching that it just, uh, it kind of 
puts a, a sour taste in in your your mouth. And I think it was on the the show uh, during the game where Dan and Buck were talking about mm-hmm. Jansen getting hit by pitch and literally around the hand area and the very next pitch, not seconds after they get struck with it. So such a grueling position, which is why when you have two uh, really good catchers, it's, it really bodes well for a club because you are literally one pitch, one foul tip away from losing a guy. And uh, the Blue Jays have two really good ones. It would really be really, really nice to see Danny kind of get back to really full health where he can really feel that strength in that hand. Uh, because when he is swinging the bat well, this club really does look different. He's really, really good at getting that clutch hit. Yeah. A ton of his RBIs have either given the Jays the lead or tied the game. He's always in finding a way to come through in a big spot, so hopefully that uh, that hand really, really heals up and he can really get back to full strength. Yeah, especially when Alejandro Kirk's not having the same offensive season that he that he had um, a year ago. So Bo Bichette is is not in the lineup, not activated for today's game, and he kind of, I guess he let us know at the conclusion of his rehab assignment in Buffalo yesterday that, yeah, he wouldn't be in the lineup today, that he would likely return to the Blue Jays lineup tomorrow. They've missed him dearly. Santiago Espinal is playing shortstop today. I don't know if that that indicates the what the future could be for, for Paul DeYoung when Bichette is is activated tomorrow but boy Caleb it is it is pretty shocking hey listen this Blue Jays offense doesn't look like the 27 Yankees even when he's in the lineup but when he's out of the lineup that they look like their life and death to score three runs a game yeah he really changes the dynamic of it he's just such a good overall hitter he does so many things right he uh and just think about where we were a year ago we were talking about uh, the chase rate with Bo Bichette, and he's just really come into to his own in terms of the way he likes to go about it, uh, kind of canceling all of those outside voices out and doing what he does best. And he's a huge he's a huge asset to that lineup, and it just starts to slot guys in the right spot. And when you look at the Jays' entire season, for goodness, four months of the season, this team was incredibly healthy. You look at George Springer and the amount of games that he's played, a lot of health concerns around Kiermaier, the rotation not only holding up just in general, but covering an entire month of a four-man rotation. And they've really been fortunate. And then it just seems kind of out of nowhere. You get Romano, you get Bachet, you get uh, Jansen being hit by the pitch. You've got Simber go down. Um, uh, Richards goes down. It, it just kind of you just hope that that injury bug is kind of in and out of that clubhouse because it does seem to happen kind of in spurts. Mm-hmm. They've been so fortunate throughout this entire season uh, to really avoid it for the most part. But what he does to that lineup and now we're starting to see, you know, when he's in at shortstop, it continues to put people in different positions. And mm-hmm. I, there's just no doubt that the team is absolutely better with Bo Bichette in it and the protection he provides in that lineup. It's a, uh, it's going to be really good to have him back. Yeah, and he's been good all over the place. Home road doesn't matter. Um, that can't. That's not the the case for a number of Blue Jays. Vlad and and Dalton Varsho specifically, their home splits are shockingly poor. Um, and it, it's really weird because this was supposed to be a Rogers Center where it was going to be a little bit more hitter friendly. You thought with the dimensions, and maybe it's just like a weirdo one season thing. I don't know, Caleb, right. you, you're talking to these guys. You're down at the ballpark a lot more than I am. I mean, is it more than a dimensions thing? Like, is it 
Is it, it, it? I don't think they changed the batter's eye. The Blue Jays are not a, as a team hitting very well at home either. Do you, is is this just a weird anomaly, weird season, or or do you think there's something to Rogers Center being now a, a difficult place to hit in? Nope. One word: pressure. Yeah. That's what this is. What pressure does? I look at all of those guys you mentioned. You mentioned Vladdy. You mentioned Barsho. If they connect with their power, it's not even close. It's going out. I mean, it, it's just those guys have power. You see him, Brandon Belt. Belt's going opposite field. This guy's got a lot of confidence. I mean, he's going opposite field at Rogers Center with no problem. Bichette's, when he pulls the ball, it's out. Springer can – yeah, I, I understand that there might be um, a different look in terms of just what it visually looks like, but for me, it's just all about confidence and knowing – that the country is behind this team and they are expecting this team to do massive things. It is, it's kind of a constant reminder every time you uh, put on the home whites uh, that you, you kind of know these fans are expecting us to go deep and that little pressure just does massive things to athletes. And a lot of times you can want something so much that you kind of strangle the opportunity in half and your natural abilities don't really come out and you try and do more. And I thought it was really interesting listening to Jose Bautista uh, and just his, some of his conversations, not only uh, during his videos, but uh, the booth session I thought was really great when he was in the booth with Dan and Buck. And they asked him, how did you always feel like you came through in the clutch? And he said he really tried to slow it down. Obviously, everyone's trying to slow it down. But the biggest thing that I heard him say was he tried to do less. And when the game starts to mount and you start to feel that pressure, it's so easy. And trust me, I I failed at this miserably. You really want to do more. You want to be the guy so bad that sometimes you go for that three-run homer when maybe a single is all you need. And what happens is when you do try and go for that single and just try and do less, have a really good A-B, try and have a normal, quiet A-B, you end up catching it out in front on accident. And because that adrenaline is flowing and you have it under control, that's when you get the big moment. But Bautista was one of the best. I remember playing against him for a number of years. And, man, when he came up in a pressure situation, there was just almost nowhere you could go. And I think a lot of it had to do with his mental preparation. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about the dimensions, yes, they are different. But I really feel like the guys this year as a whole, as a collective whole, they have felt that pressure that an entire country really expects them to go really deep this year. Yeah. And, man, there's only one Jose Bautista, but I, I've been doing a lot of thinking this season about plate discipline. And, you know, I had uh, Kevin Pilar on last week but before the Bautista ceremony talking about what he remembers about Jose and maybe some of the tips he tried to give him. And he said, you know, I wish I I had taken more of the advice he was trying to give me as as far as plate discipline is concerned. And then he kind of caught himself. He's like, I, I, but I don't know if I could have applied it because – I wasn't great right. at recognizing strikes. So this is something I'm, right. I'm curious about, Caleb. Like once you reach the major leagues and you have a, 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 a certain approach that got you there and obviously turned you into a professional hitter, can you improve your plate discipline? Can, can you improve your pitch recognition? Or is that something that's kind of ingrained once you get to the major league level? And I'm thinking specifically of Vlad, right, who I thought yeah. when he ar- arrived was going to be like 100. I thought he was going to look like Juan Soto, at least with the plate discipline. Yeah. 2021 it was as close as it's got but but even then like I, I just I don't know if that's something that you can acquire once you reach the major league level yeah it's a great question I, I think there's definitely ways to improve it 
Um, first off, I, I, I love this topic because I, I really think everybody, they get stuck on, on the chase rates, the plate discipline. And let, let me tell you, it's just my opinion, but I, I believe very, very strongly about this. Not chasing and having good plate awareness, in my opinion, is a it is a byproduct of having a very, very good and disciplined and aggressive approach. Mm-hmm. Okay, when you hear plate discipline, when you hear about chase rates, and when you hear about um, guys going out of the zone, it it actually tends to to put a very passive move in the guy's head because you really don't want to swing the bat. You're really thinking, okay, I really want to make sure I get a good pitch to hit. I want to see it good. And before you know it, it's by you. And then you make a very weak passive move to that ball um, out of kind of fear and based out of uh, uh, surprise where the best guys that I've ever played against that had the best pitch recognition and the pitch discipline, they were looking for a very certain pitch in a very certain zone until they got to two strikes. And so when you're looking fastball in and it is not out, it's not up, it's, you're getting very, very specific. When you look fastball in super hard with a hard intent and a hard focus, they throw that slider that's middle away, your body doesn't even react. And so you don't chase, but you don't chase not because you're seriously looking at the ball and saying that's a slider away, that's two inches off, now I'm going to chase. It's a byproduct of having a really solid approach and when you're sitting soft when you're looking soft maybe middle away when you figure that out how to sit soft and you load your body soft versus loading to the fastball like you're supposed to then when that fastball comes in it's already coming in so fast that you don't even move at it you don't you and you end up taking it so uh, there are ways to teach this there's ways to um, get better at this and as you experience a lot of different ab's in the big leagues that's what you start to accumulate but I can't say this enough. I truly believe that swing decisions and what you do and don't swing at is totally a byproduct of how intent and how, how uh, focused your approach is. And if you can stick with it, you won't chase. I see it almost every AB with Vladdy. Yeah. When Vladdy is committed to a certain pitch in a certain zone, he blisters it. When you can tell he's not really sure and he has a little bit of doubt, that's when he starts to chase four inches in. That's when he swings at the slider and he wails four feet off of it. And that's when you see, it's when you see indecisiveness. That And I think Bo alluded to that when he was talking to Buck and Dan um, a couple of days ago on the, live, on the live telecast was a little bit of indecisiveness. So that's just my opinion. That's my two cents. That's my story, and I'm sticking with it. No, it's a good story. And it would I, I think it backs up these numbers. So here here's the thing that to me, is the story of Vlad's season. His swing percentage, so the number of, of pitches he sees and swings at is the highest in his career, swinging at over 51% of, of total pitches, which is not necessarily a bad thing, but the, and it's only slightly higher than it was a season ago, less than 2% more. But he's swinging at more pitches than ever before, which, again, not necessarily a bad thing, uh, sure. especially when you consider this, that as a percentage uh, is concerned, he's getting more meatball. So middle, middle pitches than ever ever before 7.1 percent of the pitches he sees are meatballs except that his swing rate on those pitches is the lowest he's ever had in his entire career so like that doesn't that add up to you caleb he's swinging more but swinging at less middle middle pitches and he's getting more than ever before 
sounds to me like I just provided kind of the the eye test, and mm-hmm. you just provided the <laughs> data that backs that up. I love it when it coincides like that. Um, yeah, no, that, I mean that that is it, right? Is you know when you've got a really defined approach, you're 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 gonna go ahead and release on the the hang and breaking ball that that hang and breaking ball from a right-handed hitter and a right-handed pitcher. When you're sitting fastball in it comes out of the same slot. And so that's the one you're in. You're going to early release on it. The one that starts a little bit at you and it starts to creep towards the middle of the plate. Mm-hmm. You will naturally swing at that and hit that hanger. If you're sitting hard fastball all day. And uh, when you're looking maybe away or you're looking up or, and, and they throw it in the other zone, that's when you kind of get fooled. And that's what the one that might end up in the middle of the plate. But, yeah, for me, the the one word that kind of describes Vladdy this season is is indecisive, and I feel like he has the exact same talent level. There's nothing really wrong with him. This is just a huge mental year for growth, and just knowing that his talents are the same. But what makes him successful? And I I have the answer. I have been saying it for a couple weeks now. The answer for Vladdy is to get ready to hit the fastball, get obsessed with hitting the fastball when he almost won the MVP in 2021. Guess what he was hitting off of fastballs 95 <laughs> or higher, average-wise. Yeah. What would you think? I don't know, like uh, 470. 400. Yeah. <laughs> that is insane. Yep. So there's a recipe for success. When he's ready to hit the fastball, he's going to hit those breaking balls. And if he gets on time and ready to hit it, he's not going to be flailing at some of those outside outside sliders because his body won't even they won't even react to it dude and i mean i have numbers to back that up as well so yeah 2021 you mentioned the average that he hit against four seamers or against fastballs yeah it's the stat cast data has him at a plus 34 run value against four seamers in 2021 this year it's been minus one like he's he's there been he, that that pitch is as beat beat him this season and it's it's yeah. it's, it's it's basically the story of his of his year. Um, I mean, you talk about mental approaches and how impactful they can be throughout the course of a season. Yeah. Okay. Vlad's an example. I know you caught, you say Kikuchi when you were in Mariners camp, doesn't it feel like entirely mental with this guy that he's just like, it's all clicked for him. Yeah, it really has it. You can't give the blue Jays pitching department enough staff. I, I really don't think we give Pete Walker and Jeff Ware and just the entire, uh, uh, David Howell, the entire pitching department, enough credit for what they've done, not only with uh, Kikuchi, but Barrios as well. I mean, they both have turned the corner, but Kikuchi probably more than Barrios because there was a little bit more of a hazy track record there. And I had him in 21 in Seattle, and I really believed that this could be this guy's potential. And what they've done is they've, they've given him a repeatable delivery. We've talked about this, I think, on your show before. When a pitcher has a repeatable delivery, they can start to get pitches in the areas that they want more consistently. So they've repeated his windup. Now they've also been able to create the desired shape of his breaking ball. So now you have a repeatable windup with the shape so he can get it to the spot with the right action. And then all it's all about confidence. Go out there have a good game, have another good game. You have a repeatable windup. You can get more pitches in the zone that you want. The pitch clock doesn't allow him to think. He is a thinker. He wants to tinker. Mm -hmm. And you have all of these factors that have really come together and made him a real weapon. Look conversely at maybe 
uh, Nate Pearson. The repeat, the repeatability of the windup just isn't there. And so you look at his stuff. His stuff is unbelievable, but he has such a difficult time getting it to the spot because his delivery literally won't allow him to do this. Look, the pitching motion is is not a a a merry-go-round. It is more of a Ferris wheel, and Pearson is consistently going around instead of up and over and he doesn't have a repeatable windup. So when you have a repeatable windup, you can start to do a lot of things. They have done such a good job in not only getting him to the spot with his pitches, the shape is good, his confidence is there. He's a real weapon. He's a real weapon out there right now. And, and you will be again as well on the golf course if you figure out that, you know, you got to drop the, your hands a little bit flatter as you come through the ball. I think maybe you're coming a little too over the top. Like what? What's happening? Maybe too much yeah. of a weak grip. I don't know what's happening. Oh, uh, um, it's. I, you know what? I honestly think it's the loft on my club. Oh yeah, I it's think the it's club's the fault. No, for sure, it's the club's um, fault. Actually, you know what? No, it's not the loft on my clubs. <laughs> it's just the loft in general. The lack of bleeping talent. Oh right. <laughs> lack of bleeping talent. So that's it. That's my story. Yeah, I, I know what to do. I just can't do it. I just suck. Uh, yeah, uh, join the club, man. Uh, Caleb, good to chat, buddy. Uh, best of luck with the with the swing. You got it. Take care, Ben. All right, there's Caleb Joseph, Blue Jay Central analyst. All right, yeah, no, it's it's stupid how much of sports is between the ears, especially when you get to the professional ranks, right? Where all these guys are so immensely talented, they all have had the greatest hitting instructors throughout the course of their minor league careers, and then we get to the major leagues. They got former Hall of Famers or um, guys that are borderline Hall of Famers that they can come up to and talk about their swing with and they can go over every at-bat with a fine-tooth comb, look at video, and it, you know what? Sometimes that can work. Sometimes it is it is all mental. And I think Caleb might be right. I mean, I'm, I'm looking for all these these black and white statistics that are going to tell me exactly why the blue Jays have struggled offensively specifically at home, specifically with runners in scoring position, but specifically at home and specifically two players in particular, Vladimir Guerrero jr. And Dalton Varsho. I mean, is it possible that we're just talking about the mental approach being a little bit different in those two locales for those two dudes? And in the case of Dalton Varsho, Maybe it's a situation where he was put in the wrong position to start the season, hitting fourth right out of the gates after being acquired in the most notable trade of the offseason. And obviously not a guy that uh, should be hitting in the middle of uh, a World Series caliber lineup. And for Vlad, I mean, it's not like they put him in the wrong position. He's the face of this franchise outside of Bo Bichette. But going into the season, it was 1-1A and just hasn't happened for him at home. And I guess maybe just part of the the growing pains of being a 24-year-old major leaguer, son of a Hall of Famer. But yeah, this team needs him and needs him right away because despite all the incredible starting uh, pitching that they've gotten and all the incredible relief pitching that they've gotten and all the incredible outfield defense that they've gotten, haven't scored enough runs, haven't put it together enough to have a breathing room with 40 or... a significant amount of breathing room with 40 games to go in the regular season, just a half game up on the Mariners and tied in the loss column heading into a uh, very big three-game weekend series in Cincinnati against a Reds team that's also battling for their playoff lives. I would say the stakes are much lower for a team that, like, the owner before the season was talking about 
operating like a nonprofit. <laughs> and two years ago, when they were losing 100 games, he was asked, hey, uh, what would you tell fans about the lack of interest in, in winning this year? He said, where, where else are you going to go to watch a baseball game? Well, that sucks. But now, if you're a Reds fan, you got one of the most exciting young players in Ellie De La Cruz and a future Hall of Famer having a resurgent season and Joey Votto, and you're right in the playoff mix. We'll talk to C. Trent Rosecrans, Reds writer for The Athletic, next as the fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Annis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Unrivaled insight, analysis, and opinions on all things Blue Jays. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Blue Jays and Cincinnati Reds getting set to start a three-game weekend series tonight. Game one on Apple TV tonight, but you can hear it right here on Sportsnet 590, The Fan. As Cincinnati Reds are a surprising team in Major League Baseball considering they lost 100 games last year and currently find themselves at least tied for a playoff spot in the National League. At 63-59, and 59, they have a minus 20 run differential. Who cares? They're uh, they're relevant, which nobody expected them to be at this point in the season. They got a young uh, up-and-coming superstar in L.A. De La Cruz. Uh, T.J. Friedel is playing spectacularly well, had maybe the play of the year on uh, Wednesday in, in stealing a home run in Cleveland. And they got a guy who's headed into the Hall of Fame, I think, in, in Joey Votto, who... Might be playing his final year in, in Major League Baseball. We'll have to see, though. He's going to turn 40 years old in September. This is the final year of that ginormous contract he, st- he signed with the Cincinnati Reds a zillion years ago. He does have a, a team option for $20 bucks next year, which, as much as I like Joey Votto, seems unlikely that the spendthrift Reds are going to spend $20 bucks on a on a 41-year-old or a 40-year-old about to be 41-year-old next season. There's a $7 million buyout on that deal. Does he go back to Cincinnati? Does he hang him up? Does he go somewhere else? The end of his career? The, I, like, he's still a productive major leaguer, though, at the moment. Surprisingly so as well, coming off shoulder surgery and then, like, a very slow start. And the batting average is low, but hitting a bunch of home runs recently, and as is his normal want, taking a bunch of uh, walks, and he'll be in the lineup again today for the Cincinnati Reds. Uh, yesterday, I-, I mentioned how Bo Bichette wrapped up his rehab assignment in Buffalo with the Bisons, two for two, played six innings of defense, hit a home run to right field. I, I think Bo Bichette has-, has conquered, or he's shown us that he can he can handle minor league pitching. Speaking of minor league pitching, though, Ricky Tiedemann, Made his second start back in double A since coming back from the injury. Gave up a couple runs, but struck out five over three and two thirds. And I think more notably, he threw 56 pitches for the Fisher Cats 
yesterday. You know what's shocking is how off the radar he has felt, especially considering how electric he was in spring training and how every conversation about what could be one of the most interesting discussions around this Blue Jays team, especially if, as you projected towards September and the roster expansion, was how would Ricky Tiedemann factor into this team? Would they bring him up to get his first taste of the major leagues as a reliever, a la David Price? Would he be so undeniable, like an Alec Manoa, that he forces his way up? I mean, Manoa was May, different age scenario with the two. But that his insertion onto the major league roster was not something totally out of the question going into this season. Now injuries have hampered that significantly. Like, obviously, he's not going to be a major league player this season. I mean, partly because of the injuries and partly because the Blue Jays don't need him, frankly. Like, whether it's the rotation or the bullpen, Blue Jays have been so good pitching the ball. Like, they're, they're having to send down quality major leaguers right now. Like, Jay Jackson's been good for this team. Sorry, he gave up a home run to, again, a future Hall of Famer and Bryce Harper, and, and he's demoted after Trevor Richards is activated today. That there, there would be no place for him. But, yeah, this is a scenario now, though, that bears monitoring because it's I, – I almost hesitate to bring this name up, but – before it was a performance thing with Nate Pearson, it was a uh, this guy's not building up his innings load enough thing with Nate Pearson because the injuries kept holding him back. And boy, he really needed to get over 100 innings. Boy, he really just needed to get over 50 innings. And, and now we're looking you know, at Ricky Tiedemann's career high being 70 plus innings. And this year he's not going to achieve that. And I think at, at the worst, People were estimating that Ricky Tiedemann would be a major leaguer as soon as next year. And maybe if he reached the major leagues as a reliever at the end of this season, would go into next year with a chance to win a rotation job. Now, that's entirely out of the question. Like, he's obviously not going to break camp with this team next year as, as a, a major leaguer, um, either as a reliever or as a starter. And obviously, they're going to try... They're going to try like hell to continue to build him up as a starter. But yeah, it's just been it's been weird how much of a story that was coming into the season and how little a story it is at the moment. And yeah, I, I don't think it says anything about Ricky Tiedemann's long-term prospects as being a major league player, but this year it hasn't worked out for him at all. It's worked out really well for Kevin Biggio, though, recently. Surprisingly so. And 2020... In, in a lot of ways, feels like 100 years ago because we were living a different world during that 2020 season. And Major League Baseball was very, very strange in 2020. But I'll tell you, there were more than a few times where you thought if there was a big moment for the Toronto Blue Jays, the guy you'd want at the plate was Kevin Biggio. And this is a guy that went from being an organizational guy, an org guy, as they call him, somebody who's just like minor league filler, despite the impressive last name, to somebody that turned himself into a major leaguer. And then when he arrived at the major leagues, he got to produce right out of the gates. He, he took a ton of walks, as he's continued to do, especially considering how 
how pitchable he has been the last couple of years, but showed some great power and looked like he was going to be a mainstay, not just as a roster player for the Blue Jays, but like an everyday position player. Lots happened since then. And even going back to the beginning of last year, it was like, you know, maybe a timeshare uh, between he and Santiago Espinal in which, you know, it turned into Espinal's job because he was just so good or at least came up with so many clutch plate appearances earlier on in the season that he actually ended up being an all-star and took those away. But all of a sudden, we're seeing the Cavan Biggio that we have seen before at the major league level, and it has you thinking about what he could be for this team going forward. I mean, how many times have, have people thrown him into their theoretical trade offers as like filler kind of like yeah and then Kevin Biggio on top of that who can play all over the place and he can be the the back end of your roster well he's hitting fourth for the Blue Jays today and the Blue Jays currently in a postseason spot and still have World Series aspirations it's insane the baseball season is so long and there's so many things that can happen and so many things that you think will happen don't happen and even still, with only 40 games to go, and this being the middle slash end of August, August 18th, with 40 games to go in the regular season, that's actually more than enough time for guys to change the narrative of their entire seasons. Keep coming back to Vlad Jr., but man, if there's one, one thing that would be the difference between this Blue Jays season being, frankly, a disappointment and it being a success. And maybe this is the, the thing that changes in the postseason because he realizes his full potential, but it's that guy. And maybe I need to stop talking about 2021 because honestly, if we're just, we're looking at the se same season for Vlad that he put forth last year, I think the conversation's very different. Like last year, was Okay, it wasn't 2021. He didn't hit 47 home runs, but he had an OPS of 818 and, and hit 32 home runs. Here with 40 games to go in the regular season, he's 18. We're talking about a guy that's going to not come close to, to 30. Again, barring some incredible offensive uh, power explosion down the stretch, which isn't out of the realm of possibility. Like we're talking about this guy having the same season he had a year ago. How many more wins does this Blue Jays team have? Is it five? I mean, if it's five, you're talking about a team that's, well, still in the conversation when it comes to the division title, and especially if those five games are against the Baltimore Orioles, against whom the Blue Jays have struggled immensely against. He's the pendulum that has swung this Blue Jays season in the opposite direction they would have liked. Now, for every question you can have about his offense and, and how the, the Blue Jays are lacking offensively because of him, you can talk about, yeah, the good news stories that have come out of the Blue Jays' pitching staff. Most notably, Yusei Kikuchi, who's turned into the best pitcher in Major League Baseball since the All-Star break. And Jose Barrios, I mean, to a lesser extent, being a surprise this year because... Man, this is the same argument I make when it comes to Bo Bichette and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. You should bank on the previous history. And this is a sample size sport. So if you have a, a large sample of multiple years where you've been an above average good player, and then you have one year 
where you've been an awful player, what's the most likely outcome for the following season? It's probably the guy that you've been your entire career. So this is why uh, Jose Barrios' season isn't necessarily the surprise that you say Kikuchi's season has been. Because despite the fact that the Blue Jays went out and handed him a three-year deal, and despite the fact that he was an all-star in his final year with the Seattle Mariners, and despite the fact that he's got all the pitches in the arsenal to make him successful, Yusei Kikuchi has really not put together an entire season in the major leagues before this one. This is far and away his best season in major league baseball. He had about a half a year with the Seattle Mariners before hitting free agency where he was pitching at an all-star level that happened to come in the first half of the season. So he was in actual fact, an all-star, but yeah, the second half of that season, he was, he was pretty brutal. So you can talk about, yeah, some guys disappointing offensively and, and that being the reason for the Blue Jays not being where they want to be in the standings, and that's correct. But if you're going to talk about what's, you know, balance of, of, uh, of what's gone right and what's gone wrong for this Blue Jays team, a lot of things have gone right on the pitching side of things and especially the outfield defense side of things and the left side of the infield side of things when it comes to, I mean, Bo Bichette. Because there were, again, how long is this baseball season? There were conversations about Bo Bichette's defense early on in the season, especially after throwing away the 27th out in that second game of that two-game series in Philadelphia. There's no questions about Bo Bichette's defense anymore. He's turned himself before getting injured into a, at least a, a major league average defender at shortstop, and obviously the offense at that position more than makes up for whatever inadequacies he has defensively, which, I, again, I don't think are significant enough to talk about. And then Matt Chapman, despite the fact that I think he has, you know, not necessarily been the defender I expected him to be coming over from the Oakland A's. The numbers last year would suggest as much. Man, go back to, again, game two of this last Phillies series before the off day yesterday and have a look at your future. At third base, maybe not necessarily every day, Santiago Espinal, third baseman, but whoever it is, is not going to give you the same feeling uh, as Matt Chapman does when he fields a routine ground ball and needs to throw it across the diamond. That thing, more often than not, is right at Vladimir Guerrero's chest. And while Vladdy could have easily, not easily, could have made the play on the short hop on Wednesday. Yeah, he hasn't had to because he's had one of the best defensive third basemen in all of baseball at third base all season long in Matt Chapman. And he did carry this Blue Jays offense in the month of April, which kind of, you know what? As far as expectations, it, it maybe threw his offensive expectations out of whack. But... It also showed, I guess, the ceiling uh, that he, he has offensively because the conversation coming out of spring training with Matt Chapman was, hey, what's this guy going to be going into a contract year considering the apparent different approach, the different mechanical adjustments that he was making, the lack of results in spring training, and then right out of the gates, he was the major league's best hitter. And 
despite the fact that, yeah, the numbers since April haven't exactly been great. He was so great in that month that the overall numbers are well above average. Now, that being said, I don't think the Blue Jays are going to spend what it's going to take to, to keep Matt Chapman around long term. And I think the team that has no other option but to try and spend their way out of, I was going to call it mediocrity, but yeah, being below 500 is not mediocrity when you're talking about the New York Yankees. I think there's one spot that Matt Chapman ends up, and that's as the next third baseman of the New York Yankees on some deal that, again, is going to be an albatross around the necks of that baseball team. But yeah, there could be a moment where a routine ground ball is fielded by, let's say, Arelvis Martinez or Addison Barger or Santiago Espinal next season, and it's thrown in the dirt that you do pine for the days of Matt Chapman. And you don't know what you got until it's gone, is what I would say in that regard. Anyways, three-game series starting tonight in Cincinnati against the Reds at Citizens Bank Ballpark in one of the easiest ballparks to hit a home run in all of Major League Baseball, according to MLB's StatCast data. That's just a fact. Um, and has been mentioned multiple times by people who know such things. When you're analyzing ballpark data, you need about a three-year sample. So that's, and that's why it's hard to take what's happened with Rogers Center this season and apply it to what's going to happen next season. Or, honestly, apply it to the offensive numbers that we've seen this season. Because it's, it's, it's one year with new dimensions. It's one year with a team that isn't great offensively. Because that's a, another thing that goes into these offensive stats and these ballpark data sets. Is that... Okay, there's two teams that play every game at the, the ballpark on a given day, but one team's playing every game there. And if you have a crappy offensive team, which I don't know if the Blue Jays are a crappy offensive team, but they're not like upper echelon offensive team. If you're playing 81 home games at Rogers Center and just like in an overall sense, you're not so good. Yeah, that's going to decrease your, your ballpark factors. Speaking of ballpark factors, um, we'll get to see two baseball teams play at a ballpark with, with very impressive ballpark factors offensively. In about five minutes uh, time, we're going to hand it over to Blair and Barker. I've been talking to myself for about 20 minutes, and so there's five minutes left in this show, and, and Blake Murphy is going to be on the broadcast of this baseball game that starts at 6.30. Again, it's an Apple TV game. It's on Sportsnet 590 The Fan. What do you want to talk about for five minutes? Uh, I just want to give you a break. That's all. I Thanks. Just, just came in here to give you a rest. I know how hard it is to tread water like that. I thought you did a great job of it. Thanks, buddy. Oh, that's it? That's, that was your break? You gave me 30 seconds? No, I'm just kidding. I could cut a five-minute promo. We, I had a wrestling guy in here earlier. I'm, I'm prepped for promos if you want me to cut a five-minute promo about my client, Ben Ennis, the, the greatest solo Radio host since 10 a.m. this morning. Thanks, buddy. Um, all right, so tell me about this Reds team because I was going to talk to see Trent Rosecrans, who has the best name in the Twitter game yeah. going. Also, uh, the Votto Whisperer. Yeah, the Votto Whisperer, who apparently spoke at 3 o'clock. I was looking for quotes. I didn't see any. Um, 
Okay, let's do the Votto thing in the five minutes that we have. He's going to be 40 years old on September 10th. He just had shoulder surgery. This is the end of his contract. He's got a $20 million team option next season. I mean, is this a guy that you think plays beyond this year? I don't think so. I think at this point, you know, the fact that he's stayed with the Reds, that he's never looked into waiving the no trade clause, I think it's pretty important to him now that he's spent the whole career with one team. Maybe there's a scenario they decline the player option and that, or the team option rather, and he comes back on a smaller deal. He's still an above league average hitter. Like he's, he can still rake a little bit. Votto still bangs as everyone always says. Um, but look, I think he's got some options. He's obviously made a lot of money. He's got a future in coaching. If he wanted to go down that route, he has a very clear future in media. If he wanted to go down that route and the opportunity to go out on a high, having hit well after your down seasons, having gone out in such a fun season with the Reds, I think that probably trumps coming back to make another mill or something like that and play a part-time role. I guess, but I, I mean, he, he does feel like such a passionate baseball player. Like he has other, uh, you're right. Like he has other revenue streams. He has other things that he could do. I just, man, there's so few examples of, of, of professional athletes in any sport who decide to walk away without being forced. And, and if he keeps this up the rest of the season, he's not going to be forced. So what I would counter to that is that he got a glimpse of what being forced out might be like last year. And I, if I were him and I don't know him very well, but if I were in that spot, I think having tasted what it's like to not go out on your own terms, to go out injured, to go out ineffective versus now such a fun season, you go out having a decent offensive year. um, I think he's lived it more than, you know, the boxer who fights two or three fights too long. Yeah, I guess, I guess that's true. It's just good to see. Yeah, you're right. You know what would have been horrible is if the the hundred loss Reds, who were a hundred loss team last year, were a hundred loss team again this year, and Joey Votto looked like the Joey Votto that we saw at times when he was healthy last year. That would have yeah. been brutal. Um, what I mean, it's going to be less brutal if he's not in the playoffs. I will say, in in you know what would have been an ideal scenario is if the hundred loss Reds team was still a hundred loss Red team and. You know, I finally got my wish fulfilled of the Blue Jays trading for Joey Votto, but unfortunately that was never a conversation because the Reds, I think, were leading the Central at the deadline. Yeah, and I mean, the Jays kind of moved off of that when they signed Brandon Belt, too. Yeah. There's just not a spot for another you lefty first base. You one Brandon Belt, two Brandon Belts. You've got the second one at AAA Buffalo with yeah. a 930 OPS or whatever, Spencer nice. Horowitz. Uh, you'll be all right. No, this will be a lot of fun with Votto. Uh, I think this series uh, probably... I mean, if he retires, the last time we'll see him against the Jays. No, it is, uh, and and that would be a bummer. But uh, yeah, what do you make of this Reds team before they go? Got about thirty seconds, but yeah, they they have a negative run differential, um, but they're they're still in a playoff spot in the National League. They are super fast and super exciting. Every single player in this lineup, except for Votto, can probably steal a base. They've actually stolen more bases already this year, three quarters of the way in, than any team over a full season since twenty sixteen. Uh, so if you are Kirk and Jansen and you're some Blue Jays pitchers, that's what I'd watch out for. Uh, Brett Kennedy, the starter tonight, the Blue Jays should absolutely tee off on him. He had a bad ERA in independent ball before the Reds scooped him up. Well, we'll see. Uh, I've seen many a guy like that the Blue Jays have not hit against. All right. Have a great show, man. Thanks, man. Uh, Blake Murphy has the call with uh, Ben Schulman coming up at 630 here on Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Blair and Barker are next. I'm off next week, so we'll see you in a week's time. Enjoy the baseball, everybody. Fan drive time, Sportsnet 590 The Fan.